Before we get into our time in the Word, I just wanted to ask you to join me in prayer over a particular need uh, locally for us. We have a um, a pastor in the area who's recently been the pastor of Getchell Street Baptist Church. I would say in the last couple of years, he's taken the helm there um, when they needed uh, the, that church in particular has had um, some suffering probably in the last three or four years. Uh, their uh, most recent pastor, the one that we've known um, the most, uh, David Brown, a young man, suffered a stroke and was no longer able to continue. This was a couple of years ago. No longer able to continue in ministry, and so that church was left wanting for leadership and a pastor. And um, uh, Pastor McSpadden, who some of you will know from his involvement with Temple Academy, ended up pastoring that church and has recently um, had COVID. And I, from what I understand, I don't have any latest information, but was on a ventilator and really struggling. And so we certainly would want to pray for Pastor McSpadden this morning, but also just praying for a church that is reeling and hurting and and uh, wondering, I'm sure, uh, what's going on, you know, in the terms of their the life of their church. And so would you just take a few minutes with me and let's pray for their needs this morning. God, I want to thank you, Father, for uh, the community that you've built of like-minded believers. And I thank you, Lord, for the witness of the gospel that is in the city of Waterville and the greater area of Waterville. And Lord, you've blessed many of us pastors with friendships and relationships that uh, go beyond uh, the uh, the church walls and the names on our churches and those sorts of things to where we truly do care for one another as brothers. And so when one of them is down and out, Lord, we just feel the need and the burden. And uh, Lord, we know your people do as well. And so today, our hearts are heavy for the folks of Getchell Street Baptist and uh, Lord, wanting you to continue to lead them in the ways of of the cross and towards their own healing and maturity and all the things, Lord, that you've designed the church to be. But right now their concerns are with their pastor who's struggling so greatly with sickness. And so I pray, God, that you would raise him up. I pray that you would miraculously heal him and turn things around for this congregation, but for this man, for his family, and for all those who are touched by his life and his ministry, Lord, his service to you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would continue to to just have your way uh, in his life and in his family. Lord, but please hear our cry, God, to turn things around for his health. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Also, I want to um, just mention um, that we have as a church an opportunity, and this time of year kind of opens the door to this. It's funny because many of you got um, hit up from all the places that you've ordered online this week on Tuesday. Everyone's like, it's Giving Tuesday. Send us some money. And I'm thinking, you can do that? You can just say it's giving day and then people are supposed to just give and everything. So today is giving Sunday. I'm just going to announce it. <laughs> See what happens with that. Um, but in all seriousness, of course, you know, we would say that for the finances of the church and everything. And that's a given. And we, we do talk about that on a regular basis and stuff. But in addition to the giving that, um, that, that we as a church are, are able to take part in, 
Uh, we also have the opportunity to bless people in need and, and with Angel Tree every year this becomes an incredible thing and our people just rise to the occasion and take the angels and bring the gifts in and it's kind of neat all throughout the week we have people stopping in either to pick up an angel or drop off a present or something along those lines and so it's great for, for the staff here to see the activity and the buzz of the church as people are taking up these needs. Um, we also have a, a separate opportunity, um, if you will, that's called our benevolence fund. And so historically, faith has always had a benevolence fund and we only have in it what is specifically contributed to it. If that makes sense, we don't budget to it. We just, as people say, I want to give this to the church to specifically go to some kind of need. If people have an oil bill or a light bill or something or they need groceries or something. And what we do with that benevolence fund is we... Um, use that for the needs of our people, the ones that are here in our church and we know somewhat their story or their background and and that sort of thing. And so we're able to judiciously um, bless people based on the giving of of all of you folks because of that. So we don't call attention to that fund probably nearly as much as we should. Um, it's hopeful and intended to be an addition to the giving that we already do and is 20 bucks comes in, we think about how could 20 bucks go out and that kind of thing. Um, but in particular, I have two situations in mind that the staff is well aware of. I can't share the details with you um, because of the privacy of the matter, but also it's true to the two recipients because they wouldn't come and ask us for help. Uh, would actually have no idea that we're highlighting this as a particular need. So um, this would be the kind of thing that as you have um, either the cash or a check or something like that, and you're able to, and I meant to check on my way in. Can someone just confirm for me that in the giving boxes in the back, we have envelopes full in the thing? Yeah, okay. So those envelopes, if you take one of those and put whatever you have in there and you just want to write benevolence or B-E-N or something like, well, no, don't do that because then Ben will come up and say, give me the money. <laughs> Let's not do that benevolence, uh, or something like that, you know, and what we'll do is we'll set that aside separately from the regular giving of the week and we'll be able to contribute. In particular, we have some, uh, desire to help with some of the common expenses this time of year, like oil and things like that. Again, so these would be our people, um, people that, uh, your leadership is well aware of their, their need in their circumstances. And I think to their credit, people that weren't, wouldn't be asking for the help. Um, so that's something for us to keep in mind. So keep that uh, before you and keep that as a matter of prayer this morning. Uh, this morning, as we get into John 12, uh, back into John 12, I appreciate uh, Rick Moore's uh, lead up to that as we had in our communion time, because it is a reminder that Jesus is now marching towards the cross in great need, if you will, from the human side of things, in great need of motivation and determination. And so what we're going to be challenged with as we go through this text this morning is our own contemplation. Like, what's the thing that gets me over the hump when I just don't feel like doing so-and-so? Or I know this is expected of me, I just can't quite get there. And, and we have all different forms of motivation, do we not? Like caffeine, this is a great one. Like, I, I can't do a thing. We'll say, I can't do a thing till I've had my morning coffee. 
You know, and the kids aren't allowed to talk to you, all that sort of stuff, and that becomes a form of motivation, or, or maybe I can't lose this job like I have the previous one, so I have to get up and get there on, you know, there's all sorts of determining factors for the motivation. What, it's, what is the thing that moves you to do the thing that you're responsible to accomplish? And the problem with so many of our motivations or the things that spur on our determination is that they're fleeting. Caffeine only lasts so long or once the boss stops staring at you with that ugly face or something, you start feeling like, oh, okay, good. I can show up late again. You know, he's off my back or whatever the case may be. There's just those external forms of motivation so rarely uh, provide for a consistent pattern or a good track record of doing what we should and can do. Jesus is going to demonstrate for us the ultimate source of motivation so that he can do the ultimate task before him, which is why we're even here together is because of what he was able to accomplish. And the rest of the book of John, now from this point on in chapter 12 to where we go throughout the rest of it, is going to only cover one week, the final week in Jesus' life. So the rest of our time together, the, the months that we still have ahead of us as we're going to be going through John, just to give you a heads up, is going to be focused on one week. And as we already heard, there was a celebration of palm trees and shouts of Hosanna, save us now. And there's this great enthusiasm that Jesus is marking in, mar- marching in to accomplish the political victory that they were craving. But we even saw from last week that the draw was starting to be so powerful to Jesus that even those that are outside of the Jewish faith, the Gentiles or the non-Jews were starting to be attracted to him to start to make the migration to come and find out more about this. Could this be the Messiah? And and as the disciples came and share that with Jesus and say, we've even got the Greeks coming to ask you these questions. He says, okay, it's time now for us to accomplish what we set to accomplish. The reason why I came here, the, the point of it all is now at hand. And in, in doing so, Jesus calls us, as we saw in verses 24 and 25, where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is, is saying that this is going to cost you something and I'm going to demonstrate that it costs me something. But rather than just seeing it as laying down your life for no good reason other than just to show your loyalty, he says, consider it as planting a seed. Nobody, uh, I came across a, a part of a Max Lucado reading one time, and I've shared this sometimes in funeral environments where he says, nobody comes up to a farmer as the farmer is sitting there getting ready to throw seed in the ground and he's starting to weep and he's going, I just don't know if I can let these, once I put them in the ground, they're going to die. Nobody thinks that of a farmer. They're like, that's your job. That's, you know what the produce is. You know what the expectation is. We would say you throw that seed in the ground because it's intended to die, to transform from the life that it had so it can produce other life. And so Jesus says, don't see this as giving up something that doesn't become something else. And we said that the life that we are called to lay down, that word is where we get psyche from. 
is our true identity before Christ. It's, it's the us that is the truest sense of us that this world says we are to celebrate, to pamper, to pursue the ultimate realization of who we are. And Jesus says that's the life that needs to die. And as it dies, it will be a seed in the ground that will spring to eternal life, the life that I have created, the life that I've made available. That's the one to live. And so Jesus is saying it's going to cost you something following, but he's also saying, and by the way, I'm about to demonstrate how to do this. Jesus is now laser focused on marching toward the cross. And the determination of the Son of Man is not going to be hindered by any distraction and even the anxieties and the feelings that he has in his own humanness. And that's where I want us to begin as we think about how Jesus remained determined even in the face of all the burdens that he carried. Verse 27, he says, now is my soul troubled. Just kind of earmark that word for a second because it's much deeper than how it reads. My soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus is going to show that he is determined to see this thing through, even though he is carrying the incredible burden of the suffering that is before him. This is not a mystery to you. It's not a secret to you. You know that the whole point of the gospel, the the leading to the culmination of the gospel is the suffering and the brutal sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But what we don't often think about is how much he freaked out about that. How much that burdened him and weighed on him. And, and, and other gospels will say in the Garden of Gethsemane that as he was praying to his father about if there's any other way for this to happen, let this cup pass from me. That the anxiety that he felt was so intense that his sweat glands began to bleed. An actual medical condition. So when he says my soul is troubled, this is horror. This is anxiety to the nth degree. And there's no pill for it. There's no calming it down. There's no meditative techniques that will calm him down. One uh, uh, a theologian says it's it's it, you see this word as being hemmed in on every side. There's there's no other option. I'm I'm only marching forward, and I don't feel great about it. And sometimes we wrestle with, well, does that lessen the work that Jesus did? That he didn't just charge forward boldly. He gets there, but he pauses to feel the horror of what's about to take place. And he does it out loud. He does it for the, the for those who are writing this down, for the generations to relate to this and say, you mean my Savior felt all of the pressure and the burden of what he was about to go through. So that you and I, as we're walking through our lives and we have all kinds of things that set our anxiety meters on full tilt. We, we don't doubt that he is one who has walked in our shoes, that he is one who can relate to the stress of the things that we face in life. His natural revulsion of the coming suffering was proof for the need of him to see this through, though. The task before him was so enormous that he said, well, this, you could see the kind of the calculation playing out. If it wasn't such a big deal, then it wouldn't have this kind of stress to it. Now think about that. We, we have become a society that wants to avoid all feelings of, of stress. Or our buzzwords are anxiety or our methods are panic attacks and those sorts of things. And so we've come to a place where we've expected that someone holds the key to just eliminating that from our lives. 
But the reality is if the task is big enough, if the mission is important enough, there are going to be some negative feelings. There are going to be some things that are like, I don't know if I can do this. And Jesus is using, if you will, he's using this anxiety to prove to us the full weight of what he needs to do. He didn't avoid his anxiety, but used it to fuel his obedience. Now, I'm not trying to counsel anxiousness and panic in the couple minutes that I'm dealing with this. So please don't take some of my statements to determine whether or not you're just going to quit a pill or you're not going to keep that appointment. But these are principles that we need to keep in mind. These are things that have conditioned us to seek help. They have things that have conditioned us to think there's something wrong with us or to think that God doesn't understand. And if we don't take the time to think about how our Savior relates to the struggles of our lives, we'll stop going to him and leaving these burdens in his lap like every other thing that he's called us to do. But Jesus carries the burden of suffering all the way to the cross and he doesn't make light of it and he doesn't act like it's no big deal. This is just what heroic men do. No, he's showing us that they press forward despite the utter panic and everything else that comes with what was about to happen to him. But as I said before, that he, he, we, we're looking for how does he do it? How does he move forward with this burden of suffering? He also carries with him the burden of God's glory. Might be a strange way for you to hear that. But he says in verse 20, 28, he says, Father, glorify your name. So rather than just skipping over that, let's think about what missional statement is in that, where he's going through what he's going through, he's feeling what he's feeling, and he says, but but God, I want your name. I want my Father's name to receive glory. This is kind of the, the crux of our time in the text this morning. Verse 28 says, and a voice came from heaven, I've glo- I have glorified it. He, God, God's saying, I've been glorifying my name from the moment that you were born. Of the Virgin Mary, through all of your works, through all of your miracles, through all of the words that you've shared, through all of your uh, endurance of the of the testing, and the um, and all the things that the uh, the crowds have have thrown back at you, I have glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that maybe it just thundered. We don't really know what we just heard. We heard grumbling and stuff, but it was kind of weird timing because as soon as he said, Father, glorify your name, something happens. And others said, no, 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 an angel has spoken to him. We, we discerned something. We heard something. Jesus answered and said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. I know that the Father has is glorifying his name. I know that the Father is ordaining and setting my steps um, uh, right for what I need to do next. I know he's behind this and he's before it and he's all through it. But you don't. You're not convinced. And so the voice of the Lord came as a stamp of approval. And you think about how important that is. Because as we already talked about, about the letdown of the people when they think they're celebrating the coming Messiah. And this guy's got all the tools. He's got all the power. All of our other Messiahs that we thought were going to see it all the way through. They didn't have the skills that he had. This guy's got it all. And the moment it looks like failure, they're going to say, well, there's another one. Another guy that didn't make it. There will be some who will say, no, but we heard the voice of God saying that this is right. 
We heard the voice of God saying that he was going to glorify even this next phase of what Jesus was going to endure. That it wasn't just this thing that worked up until a time that it didn't. But that this next part of the journey is all part of the plan. So God the Father is endorsing it. He is saying, I have glorified my name and I will continue to glorify it in what's about to happen next. But I find it remarkable that Jesus is keeping the glory of his father as his primary focus. It's front and center in his mind. And rather than some trick of distraction so he doesn't have to think about the pain, it becomes proven to be a much more motivating factor or determining factor in Jesus' life. And there is our application. The question right on the nose is, how do we make God's glory more front and center in our lives so that whatever it is that awaits us, we endure as well? Jesus camps on, he says, Father, glorify your name. And then God the Father saw fit to take the time and said, let's talk about this glory thing. Here's my stamp of approval. You have lifted my name up. You have pointed to my character. You have exalted my majesty. You have, you have spread my fame abroad. You've done it before and I know you'll continue to do it. And Jesus says, he's not telling me this to pump me up. We already know this. We're lockstep in the same mission. He's saying it out loud so that you're convinced this is all part of it. The glory of God the Father provided Jesus a sufficient catalyst for determination to save the world. And we treat God's glory as though it's a thing that we dip in and out of. We can focus on it a little bit more on a Sunday morning um, because we know where we're headed. We know what environment we'll be in. We know that there'll be others leading us in that uh, to direct our thoughts to it. But sometimes the, the concentration on the glory of God isn't something that's a part of our regular day in and day out. And Jesus is indicating for us here that if that becomes your, your center point, if that becomes your focal point, it will get you down the road that you're intimidated to go down. It will get you further in that direction that you've hesitated to walk towards. What, what does this mission thing mean for us? In other words, we're being called to the replication of the same mindset that Jesus has. John Piper says, as you and I are, 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 are adapting this mindset and focusing on what I would call the obsession of the glory of God, he says, as we behold the glory of Christ in the gospel and savor his purity, we come to see sin as repugnant and salvation as magnificent. You see, what Jesus is going through by focusing on the glory of God, and we'll come back to this quote here real quick. But as he's focusing on this, he's starting to see the enemy is the ugliness of sin. And that's what motivates him to face anything that awaits him in order to deal with that. And he starts to see the salvation he's going to provide as, a, as, as magnificent as all part of the father's beautiful plan. And so that moves him to step into whatever awaits him. And like Christ, Piper says, we see people no longer, as Paul says, according to the flesh, but with a love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. We see culture no longer merely with the eyes of seduction or despair, but with the eyes of hope. The sovereign living Christ will someday claim this world for himself. Don't you see that in the determination of his moving forward? 
You see, an obsession with the glory of God is going to lead you and I to do what is best for other people and ultimately what is best even for ourselves. It's almost like the more we aim at our own satisfaction, our own glory, our own fame, our own magnificent, we miss it every time. Every attempt we make at at serving ourselves, propping ourselves up, pampering ourselves only seems to let us down. And if you haven't discovered that, you're just not being honest with your experiences. But there are a room full of people that will say, every time I tried to take care of me above everybody else, I destroyed my life. It's amazing. Every time we make it that focus, it lets us down. But somehow, through the power of the Holy Spirit, when we make the glory of God our highest aim, other pieces of our life start falling into place. We begin to serve others. We begin to take care of their needs more important than our own. And and if I have to spell it out right, it's kind of like everybody likes somebody that loves them. You start to win friends and influence people. It doesn't mean you're without enemies. But because we're making the glory of God our ultimate aim, our marriages start to change, our parenting starts to change, our employment starts to change, our schoolwork does, because we're starting to look out for what is God's standard held for me, what is the power he's given me to live it, and how am I supposed to be a servant to those that are around me, which totally changes the environment in which you live in, far more effectively than guilt or performance or any of the other things that motivate us. So Jesus is carrying the burden. It's an appropriate, it's a beautiful burden of God's glory. He's keeping it as a weight before him. He doesn't want to mess up anything that would smear the name of of his God or to to distract from who the beautiful Lord is that he uh, calls Father. He's not going to risk any of that. And he also has the burden of judgment as we see in verse 31. He says, the judgment of this world Now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now, remember, Jesus said he didn't come primarily to judge the world. He said he came for its salvation. But we did see in John chapter 9 that he said, for judgment I came into this world. And we had to talk about the proportion that he was laying down for us here. Because he said that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. He was dealing with the Pharisees that acted though they saw everything that God wanted them to see, and yet they were missing Jesus. And so Jesus says, I, I came here not for judgment, for, but for salvation. But the minute you fix a problem, you have to admit that a problem exists. And so judgment is going to be the byproduct of salvation coming. It is going to have to be a necessary step in all of this. So Jesus says, I'm going to judge the world, which is the system that has been designed and and perpetrated all against the the glory of God and to deny his, his existence or to deny our need or desire to follow him. It's that whole system that tries to explain away God and it informs so many of our other things in life. And, and then the people that are caught up in that and that are peddling that, all of that is part of this world that Jesus says, when I get to that cross and when they nail me to that tree, when I breathe my last breath and when I raise again after three days, I will have dealt the final death knell to that world system when I'm done. And being as wise and astute as we are, we'd say, well, it's still around. Did he fail? But really what he did is he gutted its impact. 
He gutted its authority. He gutted its ultimate victory that now it's just living on borrowed time. He did the same with Satan. He says, I'm going to also take out the ruler of this world. And Satan was rendered powerless after the crucifixion. I'm, I'm always picturing in my mind the scene from the Passion of the Christ. And at the moment that it is finished and he's done, it, the, the, the director does this amazing thing where it so sh- shows Satan in a pit and the camera just kind of comes up to this really kind of um, high level kind of drone view as, as Satan is, is screaming in defeat. And, and, and absolute, uh, loss for all that had just happened by Jesus finishing the job and going all the way, being able to say, it is finished, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Satan knew that at that moment, then that was ultimate loss, even though there's more to be done with him as we approach, uh, the millennium and all the things that will be happening in the end times. That Satan was rendered powerless after the crucifixion. You know, so often as we're discipling people, we have to remind people that evil and Satan and all the spooky things that we kind of get um, a little concerned by and all that stuff, it has as much power in your life as you give it. That there's no longer this kind of controlling authority that just says, well, you know, I guess I'm just surrendered to it, or I guess that system is just going to win no matter what, because Jesus says, no, I hold the keys. I have all of this in my control. That, that now whatever temptations you and I experience, whatever uh, strongholds that are in our lives, whatever things that are unnerving to us and all the, the attention that sometimes we put on the spirit world and everything, all of that answers now to the victory of Jesus on the cross. That's why Jesus went this route to provide a perfect sacrifice by living in our flesh. And to doing it without sin and to, to laying it down because it was a thorough and complete job. This is how Hebrews 2 says it. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise put, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, Jesus went on the devil's playing field and beat him at his own game. He looked death in the eye and he conquered it. That was the one thing that Satan had in his bag of tricks. Jesus had already told us in John 10 that the thief, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So Jesus is saying by his determined march to the cross, I am going to destroy the power of death. And Jesus also remained determined in the face of denial. Once again, we see what the reaction of the crowd is as he's saying these things. And we come to verse 32. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this, this is what John says, um, kind of as a footnote here. He says this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And it seems as though the people picked up that this wasn't just some poetic um, uh, statement or metaphor or something, because they said to him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. So how can you say that the son of, son of man must be lifted up like on a cross and through death? Who is the son of man? Now, you might read that and think, well, they're saying, so who's the son of man? Point him out and we'll follow him or everything. But really what they're saying is what kind of son of man loses? We've heard it from our scriptures and there's plenty to support it. But Isaiah 9 in particular, Daniel 7 and others that talk about the, 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 the arrival of the Messiah and he will have a forever reign or forevermore. 
And so that's their expectation. And you're saying this comes to an end? We're supposed to just expect that you'd be marching to your doom? There's a denial of the ultimate mission. They're missing the point of what the Messiah was coming to accomplish. And we said over the last couple of weeks too, it's almost like there was whole parts of Isaiah that they just dismissed. Isaiah talked about the sufferings of the one who came to save us and that we're healed by his many stripes. And it started to form in them a a doctrine that said, well, maybe there's two messiahs, one that loses, one that does okay. Because they didn't want to face the fact that this could be the path to victory, that they'd have to suffer what seemed like another defeat, that their messiah that had all this power and and, and all this um, potential would end up dying at the hands of the Romans. He says, no, the son of man must be lifted up. He told us this way back in John 3. He says, as Moses, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You remember the story? That the children of Israel are dying by snake bites. It's horrible in and of itself. And then, so Moses is commanded with a bronze servant lifted up on a pole so that all can look to it. And if you just humble yourself to the fact that I need to look at that, as silly as this may seem, I need to look at that or else I'm going to die from actual physical snake bites and, and having that venom injected into my system. And so they'd have to just get over that and the silliness of the situation and in desperation look to the lifted up serpent. And Jesus makes that connection for us in John chapter 3. He says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so does the Son of God need to be lifted up so that all who are experiencing that bite of sin, that venom that is coursing through their veins, would humble themselves and say, I've got no answer for this. I've got no antidote that's going to make this venom go away. But he said, if I look to the cross, if I look to the risen Savior, the lifted up Savior... And simply, as John has been telling us over and over again, simply believe that he is the son of God and that he is the one that has come for me because I need it. If I look to him, then the the power of that venom, the the death sentence that comes from that, that spiritual snake bite goes away. It would be kind of impossible to imagine a bunch of people in the desert getting bitten by snakes, and somebody that they've trusted fits and starts, but at least somebody who for the most part has seen through some other pretty cool things says, just look up there. See that thing hanging up there? Just look at that and you'll be okay. Imagine the amount of pride or denial or you just thinking, oh, that's a stupid idea that it would take to not look at that. But if you think about the environment, you'd be thinking, well, a snake's coming. How is that? You'd be more concerned about the thing that's coming to get you. You'd be more caught up in the danger. You'd be more sorrowful for the lives that you've lost around you, that you loved and everything. It'd be very difficult sometimes to t- just act in faith. Okay, so if I'm going to look at that and believe, regardless of what's creeping up on me, regardless of what I've lost, you're asking me just to look at that and believe. It's the same way with today. Jesus is is obvious. His truth is obvious when we take the time to think about who he is and the manner in which he came and the sacrifice that he demonstrated. He's obvious when we start looking at the, 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 the plague of sin in our own life, the path of destruction that we've experienced. But we get caught up in our pride or we start to deny it can't be that simple. 
It can't be that basic. There's got to be something, some other form of antidote. There's got to be some other answer to this. You're just saying, I, I believe in him. The truth of Jesus is only obvious to those who are humble enough to know they need rescue, to know they have no other recourse, to know that's the best answer I've heard all along. Even though it doesn't make any sense to me, it doesn't have to. Because me and my kind were just dying by the droves. So Jesus says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. And really what he's getting at here in the context, remember the question of the Greeks that were coming. Hey, we want to meet Jesus. And, and there's a there's a tie back to this. Remember, Jesus didn't really answer their question. They wanted a, like a backstage pass with him. And he doesn't say, okay, well, before we get to that, let me go just go talk to these Greeks. It was almost that sort of thing that triggered what was going to come next, that it was clear that this was now the time to deal with this universal problem of sin. And so when he says, if you lift the Son of Man up, you will draw all kinds of people to myself. All all nations, all races, all creeds, all backgrounds, all starting points, all kinds of things like this will find their unity, will find their salvation in me. Because forgiveness is a universal need and desire. Sin is a universal problem. Now the problem is, is that we look at a a statement like this and it seems to indicate that there's a universal-ism, which means that he just kind of throws a blanket over everyone's mistakes and sins and says, there, I died for you, you're covered, you're good. But but the need for belief has been well established all throughout this gospel and the rest of the Bible. By example, we look back to John 3, which is a great chapter for helping us understand our need for salvation. And in verse 18, he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So we can't think that when Jesus says, when you lift me up on a cross, that all people will just be covered, whether they pay attention to me, decide to go to church, if they're followers of me, it doesn't matter. If they just flat out ignored me, I paid for them. That's not what he's saying, is he? He's saying, no, it will draw all kinds of people, even people outside of the Jewish faith, because now I have become a universal savior for all who will believe. This is an important principle for us. And I don't have a lot of time to give a lot of kind of social commentary on this, probably as much as it deserves. But this is a big burden in my life because um, when we're leading a church in a very tense culture, in a very um, uh, internet-informed culture, uh, the things that we deal with and the way that we deal with them require a lot of sensitivity. And it seems like anybody who wants to approach this sensitively is kind of deemed as not being, you know, bold enough to stand for the truth of Christ. But the reality is we all come from different starting points. We all interpret the facts, whatever the facts are on any given day, very differently. And apart from the truth of who Jesus is and the, and the, and the salvation that he provides, we're prone to get this really, really mixed up. And so when Jesus is saying, I will draw all people to myself, one thing that we have to get square is the fact that Everyone, absolutely everyone can come to Jesus. It doesn't matter what their starting point. We've already said the difference in where they were born or the races that they're born to or what opinions they might have, be it about anything 
or the struggles that they experience or the things that we clearly see are the sins in their life. Whatever starting point they have, they are all welcome to come to Jesus. If I stop there, that gets a lot of applause from people outside the church and people would say, that's the kind of thing that Christians need to be saying more. But there's a qualifier. And the qualifier is, as we already saw in John 10, that Jesus is the door to the sheep pen, to the fold. And what is Jesus but truth? And Jesus is an effective, reliable door. But he is a door to a unified community. Not that you and I always get along. Not that you all, you and I always appreciate one another's differences or that we always say the right things or act the right way to each other. But the potential for us through the power of the spirit is that you and I would be unified under the banner of the cross because we all recognize that Jesus died for my sins and I was the greatest sinner in the bunch. And if he can forgive me, he can forgive you. And because of our differences and all that sort of stuff, I can tolerate those things because we are united in Christ more so than we ever deserved. So there's a potential for a unified community, but there's also a spiritual reality to a unified community that exists on the other side of the door. And and, and that door is visible to the, to the people on the outside and they look in and go, well, that kind of looks nice. I, I like aspects of what, of what Jesus offers. John 10, 9, Jesus says, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. There's a part of Jesus' shepherding aspect of his salvation that is attractive to everybody. He would look after me. He would, he would, he would take the time to check me over to find out what I need and provide for me. That's amazing. And all people are welcome to enter that door if they use the keys of confession of sin and repentance of heart. Whether we like it or not, we have to pass through the door of truth. And he gives us the ability to do that by by admitting under that truth, I am a sinner. And I don't deserve the grace that is being offered to me. But I receive that grace. I, I ask you, Lord, to give me the ability and the power to turn from my sin, to leave that life behind. And to, and to make my way into the sheepfold, to fall under your care. That's available to all. And Jesus is demonstrating the glue of this continued unity through the sacrifice, especially the sacrifice that he's about to put on full display. The support of the shepherding that he's already showed to those of the compassion for the broken and the loss that we've seen along the way. Those three elements are the things that even the world would look out and say, now that's the Jesus we like. We like the Jesus that's sacrificial. We like the Jesus who's meek. We like the one who shows support and, and leads people to be compassionate in their community and that sort of thing. We don't have a problem with that, that Jesus, but that Jesus also has correction because he's truth. What am I getting at? Not just to spell out the dynamics of the community or even what Jesus is accomplishing here. But I think there's a twofold point, kind of a cultural commentary that I want to make for both sides, for the outsider and the insider. While many on the outside desire most of these demonstrated elements, the sacrifice, support, and compassion, they ignore the need to be corrected by the truth. My truth is all that should be accepted. While many on the inside of the sheepfold the saved sheep, the ones under the care, the ones who have been forgiven by Jesus, 
We desire to preserve unity. We desire to preserve that truth that we have seen and study in the scriptures. And we get, uh, you know, all whipped up on our doctrine. We want to get the right answers. We want to know what we, we believe what we say we believe. We know where to find it in the Bible and that sort of thing. It's a, it's a burden of mind to lead us into a deeper understanding of that in particular into next year. We desire to preserve unity. But we also disproportionately emphasize correction over the other three categories that are also a part of being in the sheepfold. Our desire to be so right and to uphold truth to the extent that we can't demonstrate compassion to people that just don't get it or haven't experienced it yet. Or to demonstrate sacrifice to one another as we look out for one another's needs or, or support for each other or to receive shepherding care as we're part of the sheepfold, all of those things we de-emphasize as long as we've got our truth right. But Jesus came to build unity in the body that would balance all of those things out together. Is there truth? Absolutely. Is it relative? Absolutely not. Jesus died for that truth and gave us that truth to uphold. But all those other elements, he gave us the ability and the power to demonstrate Lastly, there's a denial of the urgency of the moment amongst the crowd. The crowd said to him, as we've already heard, well, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. Verse 34. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? What kind of son of man are you trying to peddle to us here? That he would die. So Jesus says to them, it's kind of what I hear in this. Listen, you do what you want with what I'm saying, what I'm doing. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid themselves from them to do none of this publicly. Again, at least these words and these demonstrations until he was on the cross. They want to debate whether or not he's on the right mission. They want to ask for more answers. They're inquisitive. They're all this kind of stuff. And Jesus said, I have said and done enough about this. You have a decision to make. You're either going to embrace the light while it's here because don't expect it to be easier after the light is gone. Your opportunity, as John would tell us, your opportunity to believe is before you. So what are you going to do? I've said enough. I've done enough. And what I will about to accomplish on your behalf will give you the ability to see this through. I am done. Curtain closed. And he walks away. Jesus just moves on. He goes on to the urgent. He finds his determination to go to the cross and he says, I'm done kind of playing around with this. I have work to do. I'm not repeating myself. Believe while you have the light. The applications to us in that are obvious. While we are prone to procrastination, while we are prone to living on the fence, wanting all of our answers provided to us before we take a step of obedience or faith, does Jesus also say to us, look, I have said and done enough. I I have given you the light of my truth. I have given you the power of my spirit. You just have to make the decision to follow and believe 
would the glory of God, the obsession of the glory of God be a sufficient catalyst for you to just take that next step and to step forward in obedience? Take advantage of the time you have before it gets darker as it continually does, right? Build your faith while things might be going relatively well in your life. Sometimes the down periods we use to just kick back, relax, we get ourselves in trouble because we're, we're, um, uh, what's the phrase? The, uh, I, um, uh, idleness is the devil's playground or something like that. You know, once we have a, a mission that we're not attacking or we don't have trouble going on, we have the time just to get ourselves in trouble. And Jesus, in a sense, is saying the light is with you, the opportunity to build up your spirit because trouble is coming. We've been promised this. And maybe in our lives, we need to spend the time to build ourselves up, whether there's war going on or not. To find our determination to be who God wants us to be through an obsession with the glory of God, making that our focal point. God, how do I make you more famous? How do I make your works and your words in my life be the things that people see. I'm tired of worrying about whether or not people think I have it all together so that they can point to me and say, boy, you really, you know, kicked life in the rear end. You figured it all out. You're in charge, aren't you? What does that accomplish us? Nothing. If anything, it alienates us from other people who haven't figured that out. And they think, well, you've just drawn the lottery or you've got the talent or you have the brains or you have something like that. What if we promoted that all that's good in our life, that all that might be going right or all that might be holding us together is simply the work of God and focus on his fame? And will we learn to place our continual trust in a determined savior? The reality is you and I don't have that same determination. We're going to start. We're going to think, okay, come Monday, I'm going to do this. In the new year, I'm going to do this. And what do we do? We turn into ourselves. I'm not trying to sound like a defeatist here, but we need a lot of grace. We have that grace because Jesus was so determined. Because he didn't quit. He didn't give in. And so we can celebrate that. We can lift that up. He doesn't tire. He doesn't quit. He doesn't lose. And so Timothy says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. If Jesus lives within you, he will see you across the finish line. He cannot deny himself. We want to thank the Lord this morning for the determination to make it to the cross. Despite all the things he felt and experienced and heard and received and didn't receive, he still did it. He knew your name. He knew the struggle that you're in right now. He knew the victory you just had last week. He knew the dreams and desires that you have swirling about in your heart. He knows all those things. And for those reasons that he marched towards the cross to align you with his plan and his glory and his purposes. Would you join me in prayer? God, we want to thank you, Father, for your will to please your Father. Jesus, we thank you, God, for, for just taking those steps those absolutely necessary steps for our salvation. Bring us before you now, Lord, as as your humble sheep who don't know the best direction to go, who don't know uh, the best place for our nourishment, but we are guided by your spirit. We are protected by your rod and staff. We are comforted by your care over us. Thank you, Jesus, for this great fellowship. Thank you, Lord, for its support, care, and compassion for one another. Move us deeper, Lord, into this calling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.